I'm Cassie Hilbron, and this is the Cook It Real Good podcast, bringing you shortcuts to success in the kitchen. This week's episode is going to teach you the chemistry behind baking. I chat with Julie from Bunsen Burner Bakery, who breaks down each ingredient of a classic cake recipe to let us know what they do, what reaction we're looking for, and substitutions that we can make. Julie has a PhD in biochemistry and works in a bioengineering lab designing better assays for scientific research. But on nights and weekends, she trades in her pipettes and floss for measuring cups and baking pans and blogs at Bunsen Burner Bakery, where she shares kitchen experiments focusing on decadent desserts and the science behind baking. Her favorite thing to bake are bunt cakes and her favorite dessert to eat is fruit pies. Julia lives in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with her husband, two children, dog and cat. Julie has a wealth of information, and if you're a baking novice like me, you're going to love this episode. This week's recipe of the week is my healthy guacamole. This recipe got a facelift this week, and it reminded me that I really don't give it enough uh, credit on the blog because I make this recipe probably three times every week, no exaggeration. I love to eat it with cucumber rounds as a healthy snack, but it's also great with corn chips on top of nachos, tacos, burrito bowls. In fact, you could probably just eat it by the spoonful and that would be fine. Get the recipe along with all the links we discuss in today's episode at cookitrealgood.com slash 35. Now let's dive in. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. I am so excited to have you here today. But before we get into our topic, can I please ask, what was your last cooking fail? Uh, Well, let's see. I have two young children at home. So most of my fails are, as anyone with young children knows, you get distracted all the time in the kitchen. So not too long ago, it was quite a bit warmer outside and we were outside grilling and it was just my four-year-old was asking me a lot of questions outside and I was grilling a very thick um, London broil on the grill and I was using a new recipe that I had tried out that failed to mention on it the important step of bringing the meat to room temperature for two hours beforehand (gasps) and so we wound up it specified to heat for about cook for I think it was like six to seven minutes on each side. And after heating it for that long, it was very, very, very raw in the middle. And so we just kept cooking it and cooking it. And eventually I wound up over the grill, butterflying it down the middle in half to try to cook it. And then my four-year-old started asking me all these questions about what I was doing. And the long story short is we wound up with this very, very overcooked piece of steak for dinner that night. Um, and so fortunately we, we had another piece in the freezer. And so I found another recipe online, which did specify to bring meat to room temperature for an hour and a half before cooking, which solved that problem. So, you know, long story short, it's always find a lot of recipes before you do something because food bloggers sometimes leave out some little important tidbits in there. Oh no. 
That one's a really important one, though. Like, I, I get sometimes we might miss it, like an ingredient in the instructions or something, which seems silly, but it can happen. But that one seems like a pretty important part. <laughs> now, today we're going to talk about the chemistry behind baking. And I'm really excited to talk to you about this because you have a PhD in biochemistry, which is so fascinating to me. How do, how do you um, use that in your everyday cooking? I guess I think a lot about baking like I do about science. I am a protein biochemist. And so I spend a lot of time doing very similar things to try to make my proteins happy in solution. So that might just mean changing my pH very, very slightly when I do a purification technique, changing the salt concentration of my buffer very slightly, make it a little bit higher salt, a little bit lower salt, and seeing what happens. And so I bake very much the same way when I'm doing my recipe testing. So I might make the same cake five, six, seven, eight times, trying to get it just right, just by changing an ingredient very slightly. So for me, it's very important to know how all the ingredients play together and what role they each take. So if I feel like my cake is just not quite as tender as I want it to be, or it just doesn't have quite enough lift, it's, it's a little bit too dense, I need to know what I want to change in order to get the texture that I'm looking for. So for me, figuring out how all the ingredients work together is really important. Absolutely. And I'm, this is the part that I am so out of my element with <laughs> because it all seems to go over my head. So I, that's why I'm like, Julie, you're going to sort me out today and explain to me how everything works together to make, let's go with a cake because that's a really great example, one that I think we can all relate to. I think everyone's made a cake, whether it's a box mix or from scratch. We'll talk about from scratch today, though, I think. <laughs> and um, I'd love to know how they all come together to make the cake and what the science is behind that. So sure. sh should we start with flour? Yeah. So we'll just uh, pick it as an example. Um, a cake is a great one. And so flour is kind of provides your structure of whatever it is you're baking. In this case, a cake. Different kinds of flour all contain protein that interact with each other when they're mixed with water or milk or whatever you're using to hydrate, which forms gluten. And so the best way to think of gluten is sort of like an elastic that can stretch in the beginning to expand while your cake is rising. Uh, from, and in the case of a cake, it's going to be your chemical leavening agent, which is going to be your baking powder or baking soda. Or if you were baking something like a yeast bread, it would be your biological leavening agent, which would be your yeast. And so there's lots of different types of flours, like bread flour or cake flour, and they all contain a different amount of protein, which affects the strength of your dough. So if you're baking a yeast bread, you want something with a very strong gluten. But in this case, for your cake, you would use something with a lower protein, like an all-purpose flour, or for something that's very, very tender, you could use a cake flour. That definitely makes sense. And there is definitely a, a difference between like the softness and delicateness of a cake, whereas with a bread, it's, it's, it is a harder type of thing. So what about, what else do we have in a cake? I'm trying to think of what other, what other ingredients are. Sugar? <laughs> sugar. So sugar is a good one. So we think of sugar mostly as adding sweetness to a cake. And of course, sugar does make our, our desserts really sweet, but it's also really important for keeping baked goods moist. 
sugar and water form a bond together. And so that means that our cake can hold in additional water and it's not going to dry out. Sugar also increases the leavening ability of a cake. So if you're baking a cake that starts by creaming together your butter and sugar, those little sugar crystals whip together with the butter in the beginning, and they're going to form those little pockets into the butter. As your cake bakes, the pockets expand and they help tip the cake to rise. Sugar can also make a cake more tender by weakening the gluten that we just talked about as the flour is hydrated. And so that's another reason that we're going to put more sugar into a sweet cake than we would into a yeast bread. Because in a yeast bread, we want that gluten to keep our bread more doughy and more tough. But in a cake, we want our bread to be really, I'm sorry, yeah, in a cake, we want our um, our final product to be really tender. So something that people are usually interested to learn is that sugar is actually one of the most forgiving agents in it, in baking a cake. You obviously have to have sugar present, but when it comes around to developing recipes, when it comes to flavor, sugar is one of the first things that I will either add maybe a quarter cup or a half cup less to start from a lot of recipes or add a little bit more if I'm looking to change the texture and you don't lose a lot of flavor when you're playing around with adding or changing ingredients. Wow, it's so cool that just like one simple ingredient like sugar can have such a big difference when it's added. And I love that what you've said there about it being very forgiving because I think about there's been plenty of baking recipes that I haven't done this scientifically, but I have tried to reduce the sugar a little bit, say like try and make it a bit healthier or something, and it still worked perfectly. So um, that's a great point. I think a lot of recipes that are out there, usually you can reduce the sugar by up to about 25%. And so you'll find that sometimes they're not as tender. They get a little bit tougher, but they still wind up tasting really good. And so you'll often hear people say that they love to cook because you can add a little bit of this and a pinch of that. You can play around, but baking is an exact science. And of course, maybe it's because the science I do is a lot of changing a little bit here and a little bit there and trying to to see what happens. But I think baking can be very forgiving as long as you take good notes along the way and figure out what happens in the end. I love your experimental mind. I think that's a really good mindset to go into with the kitchen because it's not always going to be a success. But if we come come at it from a let's just get curious and see what happens. It makes those not so great parts of the uh, cooking journey easier to take because we've just learned a lesson rather than had a big fail. (laughs) Right. As long as you're having fun along the way. Exactly. Now you mentioned about sugar reacting with the leavening agents. What are those? So leavening agents are what's going to help your cake rise. So in the event, in the case of a cake, we're talking about chemical leavening agents. And the end result are these uh, is the release of carbon dioxide gas. And this is what happens when an acid and a base interact in the presence of water. So in this case, the base or the alkaline agent is usually baking soda. If you already have an acidic agent in your batter, like, for example, say buttermilk or unsweetened natural cocoa powder, you might find that your recipe only calls for baking soda or calls for a combination of both baking soda and baking powder. If you don't have any sort of an acidic component in the batter, you'll find that you you need to use baking powder. Baking powder combines baking soda with a weak acid 
in the presence of an inert stabilizer, and that inert stabilizer is an inactive ingredient that prevents the mixture from reacting. Usually this is cornstarch. And so once baking powder gets wet, the acid and the base interact together and that carbon dioxide is released. So most of the baking powder that's sold in stores today is actually what's called double-acting baking powder, and that means that it has two rising steps. So one is when it's initially mixed with water or whatever liquid you use, sometimes milk, and that's going to give off the first round of carbon dioxide bubbles. The second rising step is heat activated. So that happens when you put it in the oven. And that's actually a big plus for home bakers because sometimes you realize you forget to preheat the oven or you get distracted. And if you're using single acting baking powder and your oven's not preheated and your uh, carbon dioxide release happens, your cake isn't going to rise because it's going to give off those gas bubbles too fast. But with this double-acting baking powder, you'll catch that second rise and you'll still get your leavening agent to work. Isn't that fascinating? Because you're right, like sometimes you might have put it in a little bit prematurely if your oven hasn't had sufficient time to heat up. And you're right, there are definitely times that I've cooked things like cakes, muffins, and they haven't risen enough. I'm I'm wondering now if I have used the single Asian baking. It's also because baking powder does combine your acid and your base. If you live in a particularly uh, humid climate, it is important to make sure that you replace it frequently because with moisture in the air, they can interact. That's a great point. Yeah, it is very humid here. So (laughs) So like for someone like me who bakes all the time, I never worry about this. I go through and and baking soda can also go bad over time. These are things that I don't worry about. I go through them all the time. I'm constantly baking. But for a home cook who might bake a cake two or three times a year, you do want to make sure that your baking powder and your baking soda are still fresh. They will have best by dates on the bottom typically. Um, And especially if you live somewhere that's a humid climate, you do want to make sure that they are still good. And if you feel like they may not be, replace them because that can definitely be a reason that your cakes are not rising as quickly. And also, yes, mistakes happen, but the sooner you mix your cake and the sooner you get it into the oven, the better your results are going to be. Mm, I'm learning so much today. Okay, what about fats? So fats and baking play so many roles. Uh, They provide a lot of moisture into what we're baking. They can provide leavening agents as well, like I brought up when we cream together the butter and sugar. They obviously provide a lot of flavor and texture, which is especially evident if you've ever listened to anyone fight over whether a pie crust is better made with butter or shortening. Um, You know, traditionally, butter is known for being the most flavorful and the richest. People love to talk about butter in cakes, butter in cookies, Meanwhile, oil generally provides the most moisture. So I have a a chocolate cake recipe that I recently put up on my website, and it's an oil-based cake because it uses natural unsweetened cocoa powder, and that's a very dry um, uh, chocolate agent. And so it needs as much moisture as possible. And one of the reasons that oil provides so much moisture is it's 100% fat. Meanwhile, American-style butter is only about 80% fat, and it's 16 to 18% water. And so you'll see that that difference between 100% fat and 80% fat can actually make a very big difference in the structure of what you're baking. 
And that also gets into the difference between American butter and European style butter. Um, European style butter has a higher percent milk fat. And so it's a relatively small difference, but when you do a lot of baking, these are all things you think about. And particularly in the difference between swapping oil and butter in recipes, the difference between 100% fat and 80% fat can make a difference in the outcome of your recipe. Cakes are generally forgiving. Often you'll see people will replace oil with the same ratio of melted butter and have a good outcome. But technically, if you want to stick to the same percent fat, it should be butter is roughly 80% fat and oil is 100% fat. If you're trying to do a direct switch, you'll often see that people will use a one-to-one ratio of melted butter for oil. But since the percent fat is different, it should actually be using approximately three-fourths of a cup of oil for every cup of butter. You can just do for a cake a one-to-one switch. It'll usually come out cakes are forgiving enough. But if you're really trying to do recipe development, these are the little things that you should pay attention to to get the, the texture right for everything. Definitely. And I've actually always been curious about what the difference were between the butter and the oil, because I have seen, you know, some recipes, this, it'll be like the same idea, like a chocolate cake. But yeah, some will use oil, some will use butter, some will use a mixture of butter and oil. And I'm always like, what is the difference here? So that was that's really, really good to explain that. And I like that you clarified that it generally isn't a one-to-one substitution because that is actually what I would have tried myself. So that's really good to know. The ones that use both are, are sometimes just trying to get the best of both worlds. You get the flavor from the butter, the extra hydration from the oil, but a lot of times it just comes down to personal preference. And I'll find for me, especially if it's a vanilla cake, I love to use butter because I think the flavor is better. If it's a chocolate cake that is using melted chocolate, I'll often use butter as well. But if it's using cocoa powder, I think it often just needs that extra hydration from the oil. So it just depends on what other ingredients you're putting in there. And what about eggs? Because they're pretty important when it comes to cake making. They are, yes. So they play a role in the structure of the cake. They help determine the height and the texture of the cake. But eggs are really interesting because their biggest role is an emulsifier. And so emulsifiers are key to bring together a fat and a liquid that don't normally mix. So the best way to think about it are oil and vinegar. So think if you make a salad dressing at home and you have your oil and your vinegar and how they separate into two very distinct layers. But if you buy salad dressing pre-made commercially, they usually don't separate out. And that's because they include emulsifiers that help keep everything um, homogenized together. And so what the eggs do in this case is the eggs are acting as the emulsifiers for the batter. And so they keep the liquids and the fats together. So as the cake bakes, it's not separating out into those greasy little clumps of fat. So they do the same thing in ice cream, in anything that you put these eggs in. They do a really good job of keeping together liquids and fats into one smooth batter. But of course, like I said, they also play a big role in the structure of the cake. So if you add extra eggs or take away eggs, your cakes are going to get denser. They're going to get taller or shorter. That's why pound cakes, for example, which are traditionally very egg heavy, tend to be a little bit 
denser and shorter than, say, a very high angel food cake, which is made with egg whites. And eggs can also, if you whip the egg separately, for example, and then fold in your egg whites, you're going to get a very light and fluffy cake. So they have a big role in the structure of the cake as well. That definitely makes sense about what you said between the difference between like a like a pound cake and... <laughs> Thinking about like, yeah, an angel food cake or like over here, I, I'm sure you guys have it too, pavlova. That's something that you make with like egg whites and whipping them. And there's just such a difference. Now, we've talked about eggs. What about salt? Because there's, I see lots of cake recipes that are like, oh, here's a pinch of salt, especially ones that have chocolate in it. So the easy answer for salt is it's a flavor enhancer. It doesn't make anything taste salty, but without it, food tastes very bland. So a chocolate cake is not going to taste salty when you add it, but if you don't put the salt in, it just doesn't taste as chocolatey. Um, obviously, you know, you can sprinkle a little salt on top and you get that little, people love the salty sweet combination, but you put it in the batter and it just makes anything taste a little bit more like it's supposed to taste. The longer answer for why any baked good includes salt is that salt is hygro hygroscopic, which means that it attracts water. So when we add salt to anything, it absorbs any extra water. So this is actually um, used as a preservative, so it helps prevent baked goods from getting stale too soon. It's also really important in yeast doughs. It absorbs some of the extra moisture from the yeast, which can slow down the fermentation process. So without that pinch of salt, the yeast can ferment too fast. Oh, wow. I um, Yeah, I didn't know that it helped in the keeping the cake or whatever it is fresher as well. That's really interesting. Now, in some cakes, especially chocolate ones again, I see people adding coffee, and I saw that you add coffee to your chocolate layer cake. What does this do? Coffee, like salt, coffee is kind of a flavor enhancer, but it pairs really, really well with chocolate to make chocolate taste even more like chocolate. I don't really know the why behind this, it just does. But in the case of using hot coffee in particular, it helps to do something called blooming the cocoa powder. And so it helps release all of the flavors that are inside the solid cocoa powder molecules. And so any hot liquid in this case, if for some reason you don't drink coffee, you can use a hot water in this case. And it helps to release anything trapped inside the cocoa powder. It mixes with the cocoa powder and it dissolves it very quickly. So if you ever see a recipe that calls for hot coffee, you can substitute in hot water, but you don't want to use cold or room temperature coffee or water in this case. You're just not going to get that flavor release from the cocoa powder. Yes, I'm so glad you actually pointed that out because there's some, especially it's brownies that I'm thinking of. I've seen a lot of them say to add hot hot coffee. And yep. I... And it comes with, with cocoa powder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love that you can substitute hot water for that. That's awesome because, yeah, sometimes yeah. I don't have coffee. <laughs> the coffee helps with the flavor component, but there's nothing special that it does in particular. So you can just use hot water. That's great. 
you could use hot chocolate. Yeah, I think I'll just drink the hot chocolate. <laughs> um, and what about, you mentioned earlier about buttermilk and it's something that I've started playing around a bit with without really understanding what it does. What does buttermilk, well, what role does buttermilk play in baking? Buttermilk in a cake uh, adds acidity to it. Uh, it has a slightly lower fat content than whole milk, but it does add that extra acidity. So the acidity in the cake lowers the pH, results in a cake that is much more tender and moist because it's breaking down those long gluten strands. And so when we're baking a cake, we don't want the extra gluten. You'll notice that it also will be paired with a cake that has baking soda added into it instead of just the baking powder, since we already have the acid from the buttermilk. That definitely makes sense. And I see a lot of recipes where they sort of talk about different substitutions, like one would be like whole milk mixed with a little vinegar or something. Is is that correct? And would that work in the same way? So there, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about for it. And it depends on the recipe. The short answer is if it's a recipe that just calls for a little bit of baking, uh, a little bit of buttermilk, yes, you can get away with it. If it's a recipe that is very, very heavy on buttermilk, I generally try to avoid it. Whole milk that has a little bit of acid added to it does not get as thick and as rich feeling as adding whole milk with a little bit of baking, uh, a little bit of vinegar to it, or I've seen lemon juice as well. When you take whole milk and you add some acid to it, you'll see that it, it clumps together just a little bit. It kind of lacks the, the very thick kind of mouthfeel. It will get the lower pH, which is necessary to interact with the baking soda. So you'll get the rise out of it. It's not a perfect substitution. One that usually works better is to take some sour cream, if you happen to have it on hand, and thin it just a little bit with water or whole milk until it gets to that same consistency. Plain yogurt can often work as well because it has a low pH too. One thing that, um, butter, that works really well is buttermilk freezes very well. So if you bake occasionally with buttermilk, but you're not going to go through a whole container of it, I often recommend to people buy the buttermilk once or twice a year and then freeze it in half size or a half cup or whole cup measurements. Stick it in the back of your freezer. And then whenever you do come across a recipe that calls it, just thaw that half cup or one cup at a time. It's an easy way to make sure you do have it on hand when you need it. If you're in a pinch and it's just a cake that calls for a half cup of buttermilk, then that's fine to do a whole milk and add your tablespoon of lemon juice to it. It'll get the job done. But for something that really relies on buttermilk for a very classic taste, something like, say, a red velvet cake where it's a big part of the flavor, you do want to stick to a traditional buttermilk. Yeah, I never really realized... Yeah, all the things that it can do, but also I guess that you could freeze it. But that's just such a good idea because that's the one thing that drives me nuts is here, I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but buttermilk comes in like just a huge container that I could never yes. like feasibly use because most recipes that I see it used in is like a quarter or a half or even a cup, but then I still have at least a cup left over and I'm like, how do I use this? We usually use it around here. I'll make pancakes with it, things like that. You can add it to a lot of extra recipes that don't call for it. Um, biscuits are a common one if you're in the South around here. We usually put it into pancakes for, for breakfast and freeze them. But freezing plain buttermilk is perfect and just freeze it in half cup size and then you can always pull it out for a recipe in the end. I love that tip. 
Well, Julie, my head is kind of spinning <laughs> with everything that we've put together, but I'm seeing all the parts and it really does make sense. And it, it's giving me the confidence now. I'm actually thinking about my own recipes that have just come through from obviously years of baking with my family and you know, getting used to what watch every what happens when I add all the ingredients together but without knowing the science behind it and so now this is really interesting because now I'm like now that's why that wouldn't work or (laughs) it's really helpful is there any other tips that you think we haven't covered today that would help people um, to learn more about baking I think my number one tip it's not necessarily to help people with baking but the biggest baking fails that I often see. And the number one advice I always give people is spend the $5 and buy an oven thermometer because it's very rare for ovens to be correctly calibrated. And if you don't actually know your oven, that's the number one reason why cookies don't turn out, why cakes fall in the middle, even brand new fancy ovens, different corners heat differently. We actually built a new house and moved into a new house last year. And I bake all the time. I have a baking base blog. I did an entire year long series on Bundt cakes. So I have baked probably close to a hundred Bundt cakes in the past year in my old house. And we moved to a new house and the first 10 Bundt cakes I baked in my new oven, I could not get out of the pan. They all stuck. They all crumbled. It was terrible. And it took me months to figure out the right corner of my oven to put them in, even though I was using my own same recipes that have worked all the time. And the only difference was my oven. And so this is my number one tip for everybody is buy the oven thermometer and just spend the time putting it in different corners of your oven and figure out where your hot spots are and figure out where your cold spots are and just learn your own oven. And that's the biggest difference in your baking is figuring out your own oven. And it's a $5 oven thermometer and you'll learn what corner you should put your, your baking pans in and don't overcrowd your oven. I know it's especially with holiday baking coming up. It's so tempting to put four trays of cookies in at once, but it's not worth the hassle. No, absolutely not. And it's funny, you're the second person who's recently mentioned to me about the oven thermometer. And I think it's a great idea because I've I've moved a lot in the last couple of years. And every house I go to, the oven does completely different things. And I've got to learn a new way of, yeah, this is where I put this or this is a little bit shorter now in the cooking time. But if I just had an oven thermometer would make things so much easier. I don't know why that didn't occur to me already. I think it doesn't occur to most people. We just trust that we set our oven to 350 degrees and it will be 350 degrees. And often that's not the case. I have lived in apartments with ovens that you set to 350 degrees and they're really 425 degrees. But even more problematic than that, sometimes they are 350 degrees only in one corner and not in the other corner. And there's no real way around that. You just have to learn how things bake. And so I've seen some people do things like put pieces of bread on a cookie sheet and put it in their oven and watch that way to see what corners toast, uh, turn brown fastest based on how quickly they toast. But just it just takes a little bit of time and, you know, maybe a loaf of bread or an oven thermometer. And you can figure it out in, you know... <laughs> an hour, but I think that's the best thing that you can do to 
to take your baking to the next level. Yes. Oh, that's a great part to leave this on. Thank you, Julie. Now, before you go, could you let my listeners know where to find you and learn more about the science or the chemistry behind baking? I blog at BunsenBurnerBakery.com where all my new recipes have a little kitchen chemistry tip. Sometimes it's just a fun little tidbit about why something works or sometimes it's getting a little bit deeper into how things work from a scientific standpoint. I am on Instagram also at BunsenBurnerBakery and on Twitter. uh, It's a little bit shortened. It's B-N-S-N-B-R-N-R Bakery. And I'm also on Facebook at Bunsen Burner Bakery. Awesome. And I will make sure that all of these links are in the show notes. And actually, before you go, will you leave us on what is your favorite recipe from your blog? Uh, my favorite recipe is a lemon pie that I have on the on my site. Oof. All right. Yum. That sounds delicious. I saw um, in your bio that you love fruit pies. So does that come from that? <laughs> it, it partially comes from lemon desserts are my absolute favorite, but it's mostly nostalgic reasons. I edited all the photos for it while I was still in the hospital the day I gave birth to my daughter. So I have a lot of very nostalgic memories of, of holding her while she was hours old. Just I just felt great. I had a a really easy, uncomplicated C-section and just sitting there holding her and editing my pictures and life just felt really wonderful oh and isn't that story a typical entrepreneur as well (laughs) we're we're having these beautiful moments and we're still getting our work done too i love it (laughs) well thank you so much julie and i will have to link that lemon pie and i'm also gonna have to try it sounds delicious thank you so much this was wonderful it was thank you Now that's what I call an interesting science lesson. I loved learning more about what each component of a baking recipe does. And Julie had so many great ideas for how we could substitute things like hot water instead of coffee. Yes. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love if you could rate and review us on Apple podcasts. It will seriously take you about two seconds, but this just tells Apple that we're worth listening to and helps get the word out more about the podcast. And I want to say a special thank you to those of you who have already reviewed. Just like this review I read this week from Mediocre Money Manager. They write, I feel like this podcast is one that I've been looking for for years and I've finally found it. Relaxed conversations that are just the right length and also contain so many tips that are helpful every day. Love it so far. Thank you so much for taking the time to write that lovely review. It really lifted me up and I love hearing that you're getting so much out of this podcast because I'm getting so much out of this podcast. Well, that's it from me. I hope you guys have a great week and don't just cook, cook it real good. Bye. (laughs) 